Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, welcome to Marvel Reread Club, a podcast where we read every Marvel comic in order from the beginning and say insightful things about them. This is episode number one, where we reread all of the comics, which is to say the only comic from November 1961. We will be reading the only superhero comic that Marvel published that month, Fantastic Four number one. Now, usually on this podcast, we will be doing multiple issues. That is the whole idea, is we're going to do a month at a time. So eventually, we'll be doing eight issues per podcast episode. But for this first episode, we have to introduce ourselves and introduce the book and introduce Marvel in general. And so we're just going to limit ourselves to one issue of this podcast. So let's explain who we are. My name is Matt Bird. I have another podcast called The Secrets of Story, and it's so named because I'm the author of the book, The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. But I decided that I wanted to be a two-podcast dude. (laughs) My wife has two podcasts. One of her podcasts she does with her sister. And I decided I want to do a podcast with my brother. So that brings us to Steve. Steve, tell us who you are. Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Steve Bird. And when it comes to germane to this podcast, uh, I was an inker uh, primarily for the so-called distinguished competition, as they call it, for uh, about a decade and a half for a while there. And uh, so that's that's how Marvel would refer to it at Marvel. They didn't like to say the dreaded words DC Comics. So they would (laughs) they would just mention they would coyly mention the distinguished competition. And they would just capitalize the D and the C (laughs) to make it clear. And I've been a longtime Marvel fan. Matt and I both discovered Marvel Comics at the same time when uh, I believe we were eight and five, if I remember right. Yeah, we were born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and we went on vacation to Florida. It rained the whole week, and our parents were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with these kids? And they went to 7-Eleven, and they said, hey, kids, comics. And they brought home... They were at home Avengers number 108, I want to say. No, 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 no. No, no, Avengers 208. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yes. I'm sorry. Avengers number 208, uh, The Coming of the Berserker, I believe. That was a long time ago. And Marvel (laughs) Comics was still relatively new at the time. The Marvel Universe was less than 20 years old. And that was 40 years ago. And now a lot more time has passed. A lot more continuity has racked up. So, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, what? well, uh, so, so, uh, uh, do you mind if I, if I, yes. uh, t- okay. Um, you try to explain it. <laughs> so, I have maintained interest in comics in general through the years, and, you know, still have a great fondness for the Marvel characters in the Marvel Universe, but as I have gotten older, I have been interested in going back and looking at the origins of the Marvel Universe that I grew up loving. Uh, And, you know, I figured, hey, maybe, you know, these days with, you know, things like Marvel Unlimited and things like that, you can just go back and go to everything in the archives. What if I just started reading this stuff from issue one and did it in continuity? And uh, Matt, I know that you had done this through another source as well. I think you were the one who first sort of gave me that idea. But I was like, that does sound like fun. So I just started reading through this stuff and making notes to myself, you know, sort of notes in my own head about like, oh, this is the first time that happened. And wow, that's really weird. And after a while, I started doing screen captures of them. And I'll now put those screen captures up on a Facebook group that I'm in with a uh, Marvel Comics interest group from the time period with various, you know, comments on it. And sometimes 
sometimes my ironic comments will be delightfully received by people. Sometimes people will take great offense at me uh, taking my various interpretations. But I've very much enjoyed getting back in and really learning more about where these characters came from. See the old Ditko Peter Parker and how he's different from the Peter Parker I knew later. You know, see the very first issues of Fantastic Four, like we're about to see, talk about today, and just how very different those are from the books that we would later see. And it's just fascinating to watch this whole universe unfold in this very sloppy way. Uh, and yes. and I, I say that in the best sort of way. It's like not the sort of thing like we are going to set out to create this massive continuity universe that is going to be a global juggernaut. No, it was like, hey, we're trying to do some stuff that's going to be interesting, sell some books and help me hopefully not be so bored and frustrated out of my mind that I just want to, you know, quit it all and go and go be homeless rather than do this stuff. You know, that's basically what it was. And there were a lot of missteps along the way. I mean, there was a lot of, I think I've talked to you about this and we'll talk more about it later, that with the exception of Fantastic Four number two, the second issues of most of these characters was really bad. Like, you know, the first issues were often, you know, kind of, ah, they, they, they were hit and miss. They were kind of good in most cases. But the second issue was almost universally bad. It's just like, well, we just need to have, have another issue come out. Let's go ahead and do this. All right. Well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And before you know it, it's like, oh, you keep doing quantity like this. And after a while, you know, enough stuff of quality wells up and sort of rises to the top and you build a whole thing out of it. We both discovered that we were reading through these things on our own. I first read through them on my own and then I've been reading them to my son. I have a six-year-old son and I started reading him, you know, I'm the ultimate nerd father. And <laughs> I'm like, hey, son, I want to introduce you to comic books. So we have to read every Marvel comic book in order from the beginning. <laughs> And yeah. I got him into watching the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes Ooh, so cartoon, uh, which was a fantastic cartoon they did, which was, you know, retelling the whole Marvel Universe several years ago. And then I segued him from that into, I said, let's reread every Marvel comic book in order from the beginning. And I've been reading those to him now for years. I guess we started when he was four or so. And we're up to 1967 now reading to him so i've read him everything from 1961 1967 so i didn't read him the comics that weren't my favorites i have not been reading him daredevil which is not a favorite of mine as we'll discover in this podcast <laughs> i have not been reading him certain comics but i've been doing that steve's been posting online about how he's been enjoying reading these and we said hey you know you've got lots of rewatch podcasts re-listen podcasts re-everything podcasts and we said why don't we do a Marvel reread podcast? And so we've been talking about it for a long time. Now we're actually doing it. So let's talk about how you out there in podcast land are going to be listening to these episodes. You are invited to read along with us. You can get the Marvel Unlimited app and read all these comics which are available, or you can just listen and hopefully you'll be able to have a good time just hearing us talk about it. If you know and love the comics, and if you don't know and love the comics, hopefully you'll enjoy yourself. If you just know these characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and want to hear about how they started out, then you'll get to hear plenty about that as well. So let's explain a little bit about what it means to start with Fantastic Four number one, because there had been Marvel superhero comics starting around 1940 throughout the World War II era, and then they dropped off for a while, and then there had been just a little bit of Marvel superhero comics in the early 50s when they brought everybody back to fight the commies for a while. <laughs> and then they stopped publishing comic books again 
And then they were not publishing any superhero comics for almost 10 years throughout most of the 1950s. And then the Marvel Age began in December 1961. This was basically, and ever since, they have been publishing comic books, and they sort of date the beginning of their continuity, even though they eventually brought all the 40s and 50s stuff back into continuity. They sort of date the beginning of their ongoing continuity to the release of Fantastic Four in December 1961. So we are not going to read the Marvel 40s superhero comics. We're not going to read the 50s Marvel superhero comics. We're going to start in 1961, because that is considered to be the beginning of the Marvel Age. Even though, you can't even say that's when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby started working on Marvel Comics because both Stan Lee and Jack Kirby had worked on Marvel Comics in the 40s. But then Marvel had had a lot of ups and downs. Stan and Jack had had a lot of ups and downs, uh, both personally and professionally, both in terms of their relation to comics and their relationship to each other. And they would, of course, continue to have ups and downs. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) And we are going to chart those over the course of the show. But then Stan had been at Marvel continuously. He was the nephew of the publisher of Marvel and had been at Marvel continuously since he was a very young man. And he had eventually risen to be the editor-in-chief editor of the line. He had had to let everybody go when comic the comics industry had collapsed in the mid-50s. Eventually, Kirby had come back after one of many, many disappointing side trips to DC that he made over the course of his career. And then he had come back to Marvel, but then they had been doing... So Stan and Jack had just been doing monster comic books for Marvel. And sort of a inane, bizarre, strange, still in their own way, brilliantly written and brilliantly drawn because this was a brilliant writer and a brilliant artist, but very strange comics. They were not, neither of them were personally fulfilled by them. And then, you know, the publisher, Stan's uncle, Martin Goodman, was one day, he was having a golf game with Jack Leibowitz, who was the publisher of DC Comics. And Jack Leibowitz was bragging about how oh, you know, we've brought superheroes back at DC and we're making money hand over fist. We're making a tremendous amount of money. And ha ha, we are and you're not. And then Martin Goodman came back from the skull cube and said to Stan Lee, we need to get back in the superhero business. I want you to write a book about a team of superheroes. And so- And and, and if I could jump in here, my understanding from that that, uh, legendary story that has been retold many, many times in many sources uh, was that he was specifically saying that uh, the new Justice League comic that was coming yes. out was really doing well. And uh, that's where the whole thing coming back about come up with a superhero team. Yeah, it's got to be a team because that was sort of a relatively new idea is putting on the superheroes on a team together. They tried it just a little bit in the 40s and it was really only when they started publishing Justice League that they started regularly regularly publishing uh, comics about a team of superheroes. And so that was the idea. But it's funny. So that they told... So then Martin Goodman told Stan, start publishing about a team of superheroes. But Stan, it's unclear if it was Goodman who was resistant or Stan who was resistant. But let's go ahead and start talking about Fantastic Four number one here. Fantastic Four (laughs) number one here looks a lot more like a monster comic than a superhero comic. And feels in some ways more like a monster comic than a superhero comic. Yeah, no, I I agree. This is is not a superhero comic book. I mean, Fantastic Four number one is it, uh, you, you can't describe this as a superhero comic book. There's no costumes. Yes, there are superpowers. There are superpowers. There's a, there is a superpower origin story that we're going to get here. But it's not a superhero comic. I mean, all these characters are, like, creating just havoc everywhere they go. They're not, like, being heroic in any particular way. They're tearing up the streets and, you know, like, burning through stuff. And what? 
like Johnny at one point actually shoots down a a, a military fighter jet. <laughs> you know? It's it's utterly ridiculous. It's uh, well, yeah, because they're fighting monsters. So the cover of the comic is a giant monster, just like the cover of most Marvel monster comics that were being published at the time. A giant monster is coming out of the ground. The difference between this and all the other monster comics is he's fighting four people with superpowers. So he's holding uh, the invisible girl who is trying to turn invisible. But she says, I, I can't turn invisible fast enough. How can we stop this creature, Torch? The human torch is also flying around on fire, saying, just wait and see, sister. The Fantastic Four have only begun to fight. Then there is a giant uh, scaly creature called the Thing. He is saying, the three of you can't do it alone. It's time for the Thing to take a hand. And then there is Mr. Fantastic, who is tied up with ropes. Now they're all just in street clothes. And Mr. Fantastic mm-hmm. is saying, it'll take more than ropes to keep Mr. Fantastic out of action. And he is stretching his arm in a superhuman way to get out of the ropes. Now, of course, one question people always have about this comic is they're fighting a giant monster. Who tied up Mr. Fantastic? <laughs> Who tied up Mr. Fantastic in ropes? Did this giant monster with his giant clumsy fingers somehow intricately tie knots to tie up Mr. Fantastic? So, so, so here's where this thing just being a monster comic uh, is, is really, I mean... It's 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 just a monster comic, and this cover has nothing to do with anything that happens. I mean, uh, yes, there are under underground uh, creatures that they're fighting, and these characters are fighting those underground creatures. But really, this scene never happens, and it's just this is Jack being a master of the of the genre, who is just saying, "No, I need to show all of the characters using their powers on the cover." And I need to have a big thrilling splash page. And let's just go ahead and come up with something with that. And I'm moving too fast to go back and think about, well, who tied him up with ropes? That doesn't matter. What matters is you see what he can do. Yeah. At this point, they just weren't really committed to the superhero thing. They aren't wearing costumes. There's nothing There's nothing colorful about them. Stan was not giving Martin Goodman really what he wanted in terms of something like the Justice League. He is taking it very, very cautiously stepping away from monster comics to super comics so yes so now let's talk about the inside as you pointed out we first meet it's really the fantastic four who are sort of the monsters obviously the thing looks like a monster and he acts like a monster he is at a big and tall store trying to get an big and tall outfit but then he sees that reed has sent a flare up summoning the fantastic four and then goes crashing through the wall to leave the store. He can't be bothered to go through the door. And then he crashes down into the sewers, ripping the street up, and then crashes back out of the sewers, ripping the street up again, saying, bah, I cannot delay. I'll make an opening. And there's no reason at all for him to be acting this way. Meanwhile, Sue does essentially the same thing. (laughs) She is having tea with one of her society friends. And then she sees the symbol. She decides she has to instantly turn invisible, even though without making any explanations, like there's absolutely no reason she can't just leave there and say, (laughs) I've got to go remaining visible. She decides she has to stay invisible, even though she needs a cab to get to rejoin Reed at the Baxter building. So then she decides she just has to get in the back of a cab and hope that the cabbie will idly decide to drive to the Baxter building for no reason, which luckily he does. And (laughs) He says to himself, the the cabbie says to himself, I might as well cruise around until I pick me up a fare. And then he happens to drive to the back the building. And then even though he has in no way done anything she asked him to do, she does pay him while still <laughs> invisible. Well, okay, okay. There are a couple a couple of important details you missed here though. First, she, after turning invisible and walking out of her friend's home, 
you know, where she's now like, what the heck? She, she then knocks over no less than half a dozen people <laughs> between the front door of her friend's building and the taxi. And, like, she's just literally pushing people out of the way. There's someone who's dropping a half a dozen packages. There's a bell bellhop who, I mean, a bellhop, a, a, a doorman who looks like he's about to crack his skull open. There's, you know, it, it's she's just leaving this trail of destruction behind her Look, for if you're new, no reason. If you're new at Turning Invisible, you're not, you haven't <laughs> learned not to bump into people yet, and you haven't learned that you don't always have to be invisible, that there are times when it just makes sense to stay visible, and she does not seem to know this yet. Right. Well, but once again, you know, this just comes back to the whole idea of, okay, we haven't done this superhero thing in a while. Let's just go ahead and do, okay, we've got to introduce the characters and what their powers are. Like, that's the that's the first thing that we've got. So let's go ahead and do that in the most dramatic way we can. So she turns invisible, she knocks everybody down, and nobody can see what's going on, and then she, you know, gets into this cab invisible, and yada, yada, yada. Then, you know, the thing, oh, he's ugly, he's ashamed of his looks, and he's super powerful so he's trying to hide himself and then he just goes bust through a wall uh you know once again this is the whole thing i'm talking about about the how sloppy the beginning of the marvel universe was and in a great way in the great way that you know outsider art or b movies any of this sort of stuff can be made as disposable pulp trash when it's made and then you know later because they had very little scrutiny on them and very little editorial oversight and very little that was expected out of them they can sort of take all these other weird risks even though the initial sort of appearance of the things is kind of tawdry. Uh, but then, you know, they can get away with all this other stuff that ends up uh, accreting on this. But yeah, I can absolutely understand where they're coming from here and what Stan and Jack are doing with this uh, way of telling the story. But in retrospect, looking back on it from, I guess, when we were kids, 20 years later, looking at this story, it just seems so, so odd. But uh, It is so but, odd. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, of course, one reason it's odd and we should talk about, you know, when people talk about 60s Marvel comics, inevitably the big thing that makes it hard to talk about them is people disagree as to how much Stan should get credit for writing these comics and how much right. Jack Kirby should actually get credit for writing these comics, given the way that they work together. And one of the many reasons these comics are odd is that Stan was not giving a full plot to Kirby and he was letting Kirby tell the story, you know, really, Stan was coming up with the basic idea of the story and then having Kirby actually plot the story onto the page. And then Stan was coming back and doing dialogue. And you can frequently see this sort of conflict where Stan is trying to explain away Kirby's weird drawings as if they were meant to be that way. Right. And, and uh, it gets even more pronounced when you get into some of the later Steve Ditko uh, Spider-Man uh, yes. stories as well. Now, uh, Matt, here's one thing uh, that you might have more of a recent insight on than I do. When, and this is one thing I just thought of as we were, you know, uh, ramping up to doing this. I realized that I don't know exactly when the so-called Marvel method, which is what the name for what you're describing there, where, you know, Stan Lee would basically have a basic plot and uh, the artist was in charge of uh, doing the actual beat by beat panel by panel breakdown of what happens. And then it goes back to stand for scripting. Um, when did that start? And I, I'm, I presume it was probably an evolution of that with 
the artists that he most trusted to be able to break down these stories, presumably uh, Jack and uh, also Steve Ditko, who was also doing a lot of the monster books at this point, were ones that he felt he could rely on to go ahead and 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 help with that there. But I that's one thing I've realized is I don't know exactly if I've really read exactly when this happened. I just know it is often associated with the beginning of the so-called Marvel Age. Uh, I really don't know. And that's a big question that I've always had. I know that Brian Cronin uh, is one of the main historians of comics and the Marvel Universe. He is a columnist for CBR, comicbookresources.com. And he is very much someone who is like, we give Stan too much credit. We should give Kirby most of the credit for these books. But he also will complain constantly about stuff he doesn't like about the books. And whenever he complains about stuff he doesn't like about the writing, he always says, oh, that's Stan. The stuff I don't like is Stan. The stuff I do like is Kirby. So, you know, he's more than happy to give Kirby all the credit until there's something he doesn't like. And at one point, he was complaining about how much Sue used to get kidnapped in the early issues. And he... So it was the closest he ever came to acknowledging that Stan was doing more of the writing early on because he sort of identified issue 40 as this turning point where he's like, oh, here's how much Sue got kidnapped in the first 40 issues of the Fantastic Four. And then was saying Sue got kidnapped less after that. And he was sort of admitting, okay, Stan was doing more of the writing for the first 40 issues or so. It's interesting that the credits, well, first of all, it's interesting that this issue has credits. It just says on the front page, Stanley and Jack Kirby. And it looks like they've both signed their name in their own handwriting. Now, the big controversy of Marvel Comics is, did Stan give himself too much credit when they said on those comics, written by Stanley, drawn by Jack Kirby, should they have said, co-written by Stan and Jack and drawn by Jack Kirby? But it's interesting that the credits at first were not saying that, and the credits at the end were not saying that. That eventually, Stan is no longer saying that he is the writer and whoever is the artist is the artist. He's putting his name and the artist's name on the same line, making it clear they're co-storytellers, co, that they're doing the book together. He's not saying, I'm the writer and the other guy's the artist. And it didn't begin that way. So this book, it just says Stanley and Jack Kirby. It doesn't say one person's the writer and the other person's the artist. So when people complain about the credits on these books, they're really complaining about you know a period in the middle of the 60s, a middle of the Stanley era, once they started giving credit like that. And another thing I think that you have to give some understanding to is that DC at the time was just not crediting anybody at all. And right. if you read DC comics from the time, it's like, oh, isn't it a shame in these Marvel comics, they're not giving the artists enough credit. Like, well, at least they were giving the artist credit. <laughs> and at DC... You would just still read most DC comics. There were some exceptions, but most DC comics you would read in 1961, and there would just be no indication at all who the artist or writer was. And it was huge of Marvel to give any credit at all to the artist. I think that to the degree to which it was the crime of the century that the way the credits were done in these Marvel comics, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, there are mitigating factors to that crime. Yeah, and and I, I, I I've got to say that you know, reading through these things. I know that in Spider-Man, you know, as time goes on and he and Steve Ditko start drifting apart, he just basically starts saying, yes, plot and art by Steve Ditko, script by Stan Lee. <laughs> you know, yes. He's, he's, he's not really the, the, the most salient criticism I think you can have of Stan Lee from this really isn't a criticism of Stan Lee per se, but of the fact that he is management and all of the other people are labor. Yes. Right. I mean, that, that, that's what it comes down to. So he has a stake 
in this. He is the nephew of the publisher and I think eventually becomes the official publisher, if I'm not mistaken, in yes. the 70s. Um, and so he actually has a, a piece of the pie, whereas everybody else is doing work for hire. And That's I think not that exactly true. He never had a piece of the pie. He never got residuals. He never got, you know, he never had any ownership of these characters. He really was a glorified employee. And he was not, you know, he was working, he did not keep any copyright, he did not get residuals, he did not own any of these characters. I would say he was the most powerful employee. He was, you know, both the editor and the writer, which gives you a lot of power. But he did not have a stake. Nobody was more frustrated than Stan by <laughs> not having control or ownership over these characters and not getting residuals from the book, not getting paid anything anymore, no matter how much the book sold. So, um, so here's here's a thought about this book looking much more like a monster comic than a superhero comic. So there are a couple of different takes I've heard on this. One of them is Stan has just been used to doing monster comics and stuff like that, and so he just sort of did a monster comic that was kind of superhero-ish. Another one is that because, and this is a whole subplot that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point here, but because DC... DC was actually distributing Marvel's comics and there was a limited number that they could distribute and there was this whole restrictive sort of thing. They were trying not to be too superhero-ish so as not to make DC think that Marvel was stepping on their toes since Marvel was beholden to DC for distribution at that point. Uh, right. So was so was that a, a sort of a slipping under the radar sort of thing where, hey, let's wait until it's too far along and there it's already happened. Uh, you know, and that's another possibility that might be going on here. Uh, and then there also is the, the thing, you know, that you, you hear the sort of more romanticized stories of the starting of the Marvel Universe where Dan Lee was done with this crap of writing this juvenile, you know, junk, and he was just going to get out of the business. And then this was his last thing where it's like, well, if I'm going to quit anyway, I may as well try it my way, because what are they going to do? Fire me. And then that's when the magic happened. And, you know, that that sounds like a story that Stan Lee told. Um, but, yeah. uh, but <laughs> so you know, he romanticized it. But, you know, absolutely. these were two guys, Stan and Jack, who were in their early 40s. And had been in this business a long time and had been very unfulfilled. And this was clearly the biggest labor of love they had ever done. They put more of themselves into this comic for whatever reason, whether it was just economic reasons or what they had been ordered to do by their boss or whether they, you know, some something clicked, something volatile happened inside these two gentlemen as they created this genius work. So, okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and move along here with the issue. Um, right. So we discussed Sue turning invisible and right. bumming and everybody. We discussed the thing breaking through. Yeah. Then we had hinted before about Johnny. Let's talk about what Johnny's doing. Okay. So well, well, Johnny... First of all, first of all, one thing I want to point out, this is, this is probably the first example of what we talked about earlier with Stan Lee cleaning up something that he saw as a continuity issue or some other problem in Jack Kirby's storytelling. And that in the first panel of page six, they see a big number four as a flare in the sky. Whereas on the splash page, we had seen the Fantastic Four as a flare in the sky. And so uh, Johnny's buddy at the auto shop is saying, hey, Johnny, look in the sky. Those words, they're all coming together. They're turning into a number. The number 
four. And, yes. um, you know, so... <laughs> this yes, is, this you is, know, you're right. That is already <laughs> the first example we have of, of Stan <laughs> trying to explain away an art error in the dialogue. Right. And, you know, and once again, you know, Jack Kirby, one of the things that makes him such a giant in the industry really is just his speed and efficiency, you know, as well as his just zany imagination. But, you know, he was cranking out so much art per month. It was nuts. And so, yeah, little things like that, he's not going to be just like, oh, yeah, there's the four, you know, and it's almost just sort of like, yeah, well, storytelling shorthand. Yeah, they saw the words Fantastic Four there, but that was that was allegory. Sure. Why not? We'll just go ahead and do this. And I think, you know, Stan was like, oh, um, but it was this way. Let's let's explain it. But yeah, so I think that's our first uh, our first introduction to some of the idiosyncrasies of the so-called Marvel method. So yeah. but then so then Johnny is working on a hot rod, souping up a hot rod with his friend, sees the four in the sky. Again, it would have been so easy for him to just get out of the car and run away to go then turn into flame. But he decides to turn into flame within the car, melt the car that he is in, this hot rod he has been souping up, shoot out the top. Uh, his friend just has a little exclamation point, <laughs> that, uh, speech, <laughs> bo- speech balloon. And then Johnny is going to Reed's summons, and he is attacked by U.S. fighter jets, and he melts them. He melts down U.S. fighter jets. And of course, <laughs> you see the pilots escaping on parachutes. So he's not exactly killing the U.S. Air Force, but he's almost killing the U.S. Air Force. And then a missile is fired at him, almost kills him. Reed reaches a, a up with his rubber missile. A nuclear missile. <laughs> Because I can't escape it. It's too fast. It has a nuclear warhead. If it explodes, I'm a goner. It's like, yeah, you're a goner. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is, this is right over Central City, which is another thing we need to talk about here. But this, you're right over Central City, and then they're firing a nuke at you. This is nuts. It's- and then, then Reed catches the missile, where it tosses the nuclear missile into the sea, where it explodes harmlessly. Because that's yes. how nuclear missiles work. <laughs> and then and then Johnny, he catches Johnny well, with his well, th- rubbery th- this body. This is why they had all the monster problem up until now. They just kept on throwing nuclear bombs into the sea. <laughs> yes. And next thing you know, it's like, goom, the, 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 you know, the terrible is going to come out of the sea. And- so then Reed gathers the whole group. Then we have... A flashback to when, how they originally got their powers. And this is a flashback to Reed, just having, Reed has built a ship to go into outer space. He wants to fly it. He wants to secretly sneak onto the base and test fly it. And Ben is the only person with the good sense. Ben Grimm, who will become the thing, is the only person with the good sense to say, if you want to fly to the stars, then you pilot the ship. Count me out. You don't, you know, we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. They might kill us all in outer space. And then Sue. Well, the the characterizations of all these characters are just so off from the characters that we learn of later. They are and they aren't. I mean, Ben is hot, or I should say, yeah, Ben is, you would think Johnny would be hot headed because he literally becomes a fiery head. But no, Ben is hot headed and Reed is cold and remote to a certain extent. And Johnny is a uh, kid Johnny is like a teenager Sue is the most different because Sue responds to Ben and she says Ben we've got to take that chance unless we want the commies to beat us to it I I never thought that you would be a coward so <laughs> generally speaking Sue's fanatical anti-communism is never mentioned again <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I, I I think fanatical anti-communism was just sort of the the general uh, assumption <laughs> of of the yes. first like two years of the Marvel universe. But let let me push back a little bit on the on the Ben characterization. Okay, can you imagine the thing as the thing that we know and love saying to Reed, "You know, we haven't done enough research into the effect of cosmic rays." Okay, you're right. <laughs> that's that's far more something that Reed would say to Ben. That is... Exactly. <laughs> yes, and and you know just the fact that you know here he's this you know test pilot, and you know later Ben goes on to become pretty much the avatar of Jack Kirby. You know yes. who was a streetwise kid from I presume Brooklyn, um, but you know streetwise Jewish kid from the streets of New York who has a good heart but can you know is a little rough around the edges. And you know, but at this beginning here, you know he's doing all this. That a dialogue we had earlier, you know, bah, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. And now he's like obviously an educated man here because you know, hey, we need to research this stuff. And hey, he's a test pilot, so that means he must have an education. And so yeah, it, it's it's uh, and we'll find this as a pattern going through here that both when it comes to the way that characters speak and the romantic interests of the characters they're almost always in the beginnings of these books there are some weird things that jump out at you were like wait what and uh (laughs) well we get to that in a few pages so then in the flashback they go they steal the rocket they find outer space they do get pelted with cosmic rays they already their bodies are start transforming in the rocket they then crash back down to earth and then sue starts to turn invisible and then stops turning invisible Ben suddenly becomes this thick-scaled, rocky-hided creature. (laughs) And then as soon as he does, he instantly starts attacking everybody as if he were a monster. Sue says, run, Reed, darling. He turned into some sort of a thing. He's strong as an ox. And then suddenly Ben is saying, Reed, darling, bah, how can you care for that weakling when I'm here? I'll prove to you that you love the wrong man, Susan. Oh, hey, what? And then he tries attacking Reed, and Reed turns into his rubber man act and gets away from him. And then Reed, for the first time in many times in these comics, wraps his rubber arms around Ben and restrains him. But the whole idea that Ben, there's a love triangle here between Ben and Sue and Reed, I believe never mentioned again, correct? No. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm almost certain this is never, never mentioned again. Now, and so here's another thing that I've heard later. And, you know, once again... When it comes to stories that Stan Lee would tell about stuff, there are some people who ta- who say, oh, everything he says is a lie. I don't think everything he says is a lie. I think of it more like our maternal grandfather, who always said, never let a, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. You know, I, I yeah. just think that, that Stan Lee was a storyteller, and he would embellish and massage things in order to make it be a better story. But I know that one of the things that he has said over the years is that that they one of the things about making it the Fantastic Four was specifically to eliminate the love triangle possibilities. If you had three characters and one of them was a woman, it would inevitably become a love triangle. But huh. then if you had these four characters, it would kind of, uh, you know, hopefully disrupt his natural tendencies to turn these things into a love triangle. Now, whether that was something that he consciously thought of when creating the characters versus something that he later went back and like looked at this and was like, aha, look at how smart I was <laughs> to to disrupt that uh, tendency. Uh, I don't know. But uh, that that is a story I know I have heard him tell. 
I have never heard him tell that story. Uh, so then in the comic, they then they remember getting all these powers, instantly realizing we should be superheroes, putting their hands together on top of each other, swearing to become the Fantastic Four, giving them their giving them all their superhero names. And then we get to we're page 14. When we finally get to the story, we get we'll just quickly sum up the story for the issue. Various army bases are suddenly getting sinkholes underneath him. And then they realize that they're actually being attacked by giant monsters coming out of the ground, like the one we saw in the cover. Very quickly, the Fantastic Four trace, use a super sensitive radar scope to trace these seismic anomalies to Monster Isle. They go to Monster Isle, they fight a monster, they go down deep under the earth, they find the Mole Man is living down under the earth. He has been attacking the surface with these monsters. They then use their powers, quickly defeat the Mole Man, and they then leave the island. But Another thing that is not at all clear is in these early comics, they tended to wrap things up very definitively. So at the end of the issue, they go, so first they're flying away and Johnny says, we did it, we're free. And the entrance to Mole Man's empire is sealed forever. Okay, so that's first, everything's final. Then moments later, but where is the woman? I left him behind. He'll never trouble anyone again. And, and then they are flying away from the island and there is a huge mushroom cloud behind them. And they go, he's destroyed the entire aisle. He's sealed himself below forever. So there was very much a sense of we are not building a continuing universe here that we're never going to see the old man again. They feel the need to point that out three different times that <laughs> they, there was a big sense here that, you know, and it's funny they you said that. DC, they had actually, Marvel had only managed to stay alive by getting DC to agree to distribute their books. And DC said, okay, you can only do eight books at a time. I only found out recently that this was not one of those eight books. Right, they right. Decided, no, they, snuck the, they snuck this one into the schedule somehow. Yes, yeah, so they decided to just see if they could get away with sending DC a ninth book that month. And so that was how little committed they were to this. They supposedly should have had to cancel one of their books in order to make room for this book in this very restrictive deal they had with DC to just distribute eight books a month. And then instead they just said, well, by the way, there's a ninth one this month and got away with it. And then they very quickly realized, <laughs> I think it was okay. like, Hey, here are your eight books. And they handed him nine books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Basically. <clears throat> and somehow got away with it. Two little details I want to point out. One is that on page 14, they have basically a rehash of the cover. Once again, not actually having to do with the actual plot of the story as it goes through, but it's a less thought through version of the image on the cover. And the other thing, <laughs> so uh, when they were talking about Monster Isle, Ben says, Monster Isle, that's just a fairy tale. There's no such place. And Sue says, only one way to find out, Ben. So they get in a plane and fly to Monster Isle. <laughs> it's like, once again, this is just part of the whole messy, silly, sloppy kind of stuff that makes this early stuff. I think such a fertile ground for all sorts of stuff to happen. Uh, because, you know, once again, they're just like, hey, we're just throwing this stuff together, man. You know, this is this is just we're trying to tell a story. We're trying to get it out there. We're trying to make a buck. We're trying to not blow our brains out with boredom and uh, and whatever else. Um, and, you know, you get stuff like this, which is silly and delightful. And, you know, and they'd been telling eight page stories. So they were used to getting a whole monster story out in eight pages. And so this 24-page comic is essentially three eight-page stories. It's, you know, the story of the gathering of these heroes and who the heck are they? And then we go, then we have basically the flashback for basically eight pages. And then we have the story for eight pages. And that's why it's, you know, it's just moving so quickly. They're like, they're like, they're like hmm, we've chased this back. We think it's Monster Isle. Let's all fly there. And it all <laughs> happens within a page. 
and it is pretty it is pretty amazing. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the art this issue. So this issue was written, quote unquote, by Stan Lee. It was penciled by Jack Kirby. They're the only two people who get any credit. We now know that it was inked by George Klein. I think one of the big problems until for the first 45 issues of Fantastic Four, it had very, very, very different inking, very unsteady inking, and some inkers much better than others. What do you think of George Klein's inking, Steve? You having been a professional inker yourself. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, so so here's here's the thing. I like it. Uh, that, that, that's the short answer. Um, I like it too. So growing up as a you know late Bronze Age, early Modern Age Marvel fan, as did you, I think that you uh, are of the same mind of me, that at the time we were growing up and we were like, why do all these old people like this Kirby guy? Like, he's just, ugh, just his style is just, because he was just out of fashion. He just wasn't drawing the kind of stuff like people were drawing in those days. And, right. and there are other reasons, too. He had, you know, gotten much more stylized and in ways that I still don't like to this day but so when i would look at lots of older marvel comics you know they're like oh this is his heyday and all i would see is this newer stuff you know sort of projected back on the older stuff when he get back this far it didn't look that way right it didn't look like what i associate kirby looking like and i you know back in the day when i was uh when i was a kirby naysayer i would still point back to the fantastic four number one and be like i liked his art in there Right. And I think that part of that is to do with his his style, you know, developing in different ways. But part of it, I think, has to do with the inking that, you know, I I, I like the sort of looseness, but also sort of the illustrative quality of it. You know, it's not as um, it's not as slick and tight as some as a lot of the stuff we're going to get later, especially when we get into the golden age of the Sinat era. But, yeah, it has it has an illustrator kind of feel to it that that just it's it's it it just I, I like it. I really like it. It is, it is a gorgeous issue. It is really beautiful. And I think that Klein does not get enough credit for getting the Marvel Universe off to a great start here. He didn't last long. Uh, it would have been, I think, the book would have been better served if he had. But he is, he, this is just a gorgeous issue. So, yes, let's go ahead and record some wrap up here. Let's, what are your closing thoughts on Fantastic Four number one? I think that this is uh, from small things come great things. It's <laughs> this was a weird, quirky, but wonderful little comic book. And the idea that from this sprang the pop culture juggernaut that is the Marvel Universe today is just utterly mind blowing. And that's part of and that then that's that's, you know, that that's that's what I take away from this episode. It's just that, you know, the from these humble beginnings, humble, but interesting and quirky and neat, but, uh, you know, definitely rough around the edges and odd and a monster comic. <laughs> I mean, I should say it's not. It is also an ambitious comic. You know, they, this could have just been a story in Tales to Astonish number 31. True. This could have just been part of one of their anthology series, you know, as later Spider-Man was launched as just the story in Amazing Fantasy number 15. You know, but they knew right away, like, let's go ahead and just stick our necks out there. Let's, yeah. you know, it's not a short story. It's not eight pages. They did a full 24-page story. They had it be its own number one with its own name. Yep. It's not Crazy Monster Comics presents the Fantastic Four. This <laughs> is that they had some sense that like, okay, this might be a turning point for the company, I think. 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's enough evidence to, to support that. And yeah, but I, I guess what I'm just saying is that if you look at what the Marvel Universe became and you look at what Atlas Comics was in the 50s, that's what Marvel was called for a while in the 50s, and you look at those two things and then you look at this issue and say, what is this more like? <laughs> yeah. I still think this is more like the Monster Comics. But yes, you're right. It's a full-length story, which Marvel just was not doing and I don't think was really done much anywhere at that point. But yeah, it, it's... You know, still from from you know, this is a, a very humble beginning for uh, something that came so huge. Yeah. So your and, your closing uh, thoughts. And it, I think this is just a beautiful. You know, so a couple of years later, you know, of course, Roy Lichtenstein was turning comic book pages into pop art and was doing so in a way that was sort of implying like, oh, I'm taking this junk and turning it into great art. But you know, what he was in fact doing was taking great art and just transposing it from a cheaply printed medium to an expensively printed medium. Right. And the value of those Royal Constantine paintings was in fact the value that the original art already possessed. And a couple of years later, Marvel sort of made fun of that by saying like, oh, you know, they started putting on the cover of these books, pop art. Yes. And they were like, hey, this is pop art before it gets transferred to a canvas. And I think that's what this is, that this is pop art. This is very much a book of 1961. This is very much a book. They go into space and then the book ended up coming out like a month before the Russians went into space. And this is very much a book of the Kennedy era, a book of the New Frontier. And it is an amazing book. Well, and and, and of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, th- that hadn't happened quite yet, I don't think. But, you know, no. that same era where, oh, you know, we, we could end up getting into a hot war with Russia any day. Yes. <laughs> Nuclear <laughs> missiles could go flying easily. Yes. And as they do in this book. but uh... <laughs> A little too easily. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, great. Um. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, yeah. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there today and we will come back in some period of time. We haven't discussed how frequently we're going to be doing these things yet. Another but, thing we have not discussed. Yes, but we will be coming back uh, hopefully before too long here. We will be returning with more discussion of the early Marvel Universe in continuity and I'm excited by it and I hope you are too. Okay. Well, I think that's it. America, we are excited to do this. You are excited to listen to us. (laughs) This is going to be a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.